people in recovery about spirituality. You know, sometimes when people who know that uh, I come from an intensely religious home, was ordained as a rabbi and served as a pulpit rabbi for ten years, and when I tell people that I have learned so much about spirituality from the program, uh, they sort of look at me bewildered. You know, you've made all of those many years of study in spirituality, and you learned it from the program. And the fact is that much of what I had studied and learned was very valuable information. But I rarely saw all of what I learned actually implemented in actual life the way I have seen it in recovery. You see, for people who have not been in recovery and did not have to go through that struggle, spirituality is a kind of good thing. It's like having cruise control on your car. For people in recovery, it's like the engine. Uh, you don't move without it. I've seen things that I studied about come to life in the program. For example, there's this wonderful work on spirituality by King Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And he says there in chapter 7, verse 11, no, verse 29, I think, sorry. He says, this one thing I have seen, that God created man simple, but men sought complicated calculations. Now, is that or is that not the principle of keep it simple? And yet, I've seen the simplicity of that statement put into action in the program where people know, hey, if I don't keep it simple, I'm going to complicate things, and you know what happens when you complicate things. And I recall that I once went to give a lecture, and a gentleman picked me up from the airport and uh, drove me to the lecture hall, and he was a gentleman with over 20 years of sobriety. And so he got to exchanging some stories, and he said to me, you know, I've, I've got this new pigeon, and uh, I have a lot of trouble with him, he just can't make it. He says, so one day this guy says to me, you mean to tell me that you haven't had one drink in over 20 years? I said, yeah. He says, well, I can't seem to make it more than a week. I mean, what, what's your secret? So I told him, it's no big secret. Every morning when I get up, I ask God to give me another day of sobriety. And every day, when every night before I go to bed, I thank God for having given me another day of sobriety. So this guy says to me, well, how do you know it was God that gave you another day of sobriety? I said to him, you done son of a bitch, I didn't ask anyone else. <laughs> yes, I never would have occurred to me that simplicity is just absolutely refreshing. Yeah. 
I have learned things in spirituality from the variety of 12-step programs. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity of hearing the Al-Anon talk by Nell. You have, you're fortunate. Uh, I used to listen, try to listen to it in the car when I drove, and that was not a good thing to do because when your eyes tear up, you don't drive well. Uh, but Nell described her uh, history at this time, she had celebrated, she and her husband had celebrated 34 years of sobriety. I'm sorry, 34 years of marriage with 17 years of recovery and sobriety. She told about how early in the marriage she was so disappointed that she had not been able to get pregnant, made the rounds of all the doctors, and finally her family doctor said to her, now you have to accept that you will never be able to carry a child. And so uh, they adopted two children. When she was about 40, she decided it was time to quit smoking. So she stopped smoking and went through the ordeals of withdrawal. But as that, that misery passed. But after a little while, she began to feel all of these terrible symptoms again. So she checked it out with her doctor and she found that she was pregnant. And this was another miracle. And they looked forward to the child being a Rhodes Scholar. And she said, I had thought that I had rid myself of all my anger and resentment and bitterness. But it all came back to me when they put Chrissy in my arms for the first time. It was a Down syndrome. And I said, God, why did you do this to me? And so Cleveland and I, she said, prayed over the crib every night. God, you've done so many miracles for us. We know you can do everything. Just one more. Just one more miracle. Change him. And then one day the miracle occurred, and God changed us. I've never heard the serenity prayer said in the same way. And if that wasn't enough to walk away with, she continued to say, now if that little child did not come into the world for anything else except what I'm going to tell you now, it would have all been worth it. Because when I sit in the rocking chair and I hold Chrissy in my arms and I look at him and I look at his pudgy little hands where there's only one crease where there should be true, and I look at his face with his funny little eyes and I realize how much I love that child with all his shortcomings. That's when I can understand how much God loves me with all my shortcomings. You don't find spirituality like that elsewhere. I've never yet been to a meeting that I haven't walked away with something in spirituality. And there are principles that I've learned from the meeting that I just had to put into effect as recently as last, as this past Thursday night when my trip to Milwaukee was uh, flawed with every possible application of Murphy's Law. And I was really fit to be tied. But then I remember that I was at a meeting in New York where a young woman spoke, and she gave her story, which you and I have heard a thousand times, started drinking at 11, at 12, drugs at 13, and then the whole deterioration. Came into the program at 25, and at this time... She was nine years clean and sober. 
Well, I've heard that before. But then she said, before I finish, I, I just want to leave you with one more thing. She says, I, I'm a, a very rabid football fan. She said, the New York Jets are my team, and I'll never miss a game. But one weekend, I had to be out of town, and so I asked my girlfriend to record the game for me on her VCR. Well, she did, and when I came back, she handed me the tape, and she said, by the way, the Jets won. Well, I wanted to watch the game anyway, so I sat down and started watching. It was terrible. The Jets were losing. And at halftime, they were 20 points behind. She said, under other circumstances, I would have been wringing my hands and pacing the floor and hitting the refrigerator. I was perfectly calm and relaxed. Right? I knew they were going to win. She said, ever since I made a conscious decision to turn my life over to God, I know that it's going to turn out all right. Sometimes I'm 20 points behind at halftime, but I know it's going to turn out all right. And so this past Thursday night, when everything was going wrong, I realized that I may be 20 points behind at halftime, but somehow things will turn out all right, and they did. And I didn't get that out of any ethics book on ethics. But these are the kinds of things that I come away with from the program. So you see, you've all been my teachers. And I haven't the foggiest idea why you want to listen to me to give back what you've given me. I don't know why you buy those books, which is only plagiarism from what I've heard at meetings. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes it's good that we talk about some things just to reorganize them in our own mind and clarify them for ourselves. So since we're supposed to talk a little bit about spirituality, and as we know, Spirituality is not identical with religion. Religion should have spirituality, and if you don't have spirituality in religion, then it's not religion, it's some kind of religiosity. But true religion has spirituality, but there are certainly many people who do not have a religious orientation, who I find to be very, very spiritual people. And so then I'm challenged sometime to give a definition of what is spirituality if it is not religion. So let's break it down to first the word spirit, because obviously spirituality has something to do with spirit. What is the spirit? Before talking about spirituality, I thought maybe we would define an earlier term. How do we define, define humanity? What is the difference, essentially, between a human being and other forms of life? Now, when we went to biology class in high school, we learned that a human being is a homo sapiens. Now, that's fine if you don't understand Latin. But if you translate that into English, it becomes a little bit problematic. Because homo, of course, refers to the genus of hominoids, which includes, in addition to man, all the other simians, apes and gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees and... Uh, um, baboons and monkeys, and sapiens means intellect. That's the narrow definition, and if we accept that definition, then human beings are baboons with intellect. Well, you know, I think we have too much pride to think of ourselves as baboons with intellect. And I think that as important as intellect is, there is something more to humanity than intelligence. So, begin to look at 
What else does a human being have other than a greater intellect than animals? And we can come up with several things that are quite obvious, and you may add more to the list. First of all, I believe that a human being is the only living thing, only living creature, that can learn from the history of the past. I mean, we can look back in history books and whatever, and we can see the kinds of things that people did in the past, that we can learn from their mistakes, hopefully. We can emulate the kinds of good things that they did. Animals cannot do that. They have no way of learning from histories of past generations. I believe that we are the only creatures that contemplate or can, can contemplate about the purpose of our existence. You know, one of the, the thrills of my life was going on a safari in the Cougar National Park in South Africa. So many, many wonderful wild animals. I don't believe that any of them were wondering what the hell they were doing there in the jungle. <laughs> you know, I don't believe that animals go around thinking, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do with my life? So, the capacity, the ability to search for a purpose of existence is a unique human feature. If you want to include that under sapiens, fine, but I think it needs to be pointed out by itself. I believe that we are the only creatures that can think about and implement self-improvement. Now, when you drive along the countryside and you see the cows in the pasture grazing, and there's some cows that have finished grazing, they're just lying there, doing nothing. Well, if they're doing nothing, they must be thinking, right? What are the chances that the cow is thinking, now I wonder what I have to do to be a better cow than I am? <laughs> no, I don't believe that cows or any other animals think that way. We have the ability to think about self-improvement and to do things to improve ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that animals don't improve. Uh, I think that a butterfly is a huge improvement on a caterpillar. But the caterpillar does not voluntarily, volitionally change itself into a butterfly. It's not a willful act. If it were, then it would be possible for a caterpillar to say, No, I don't want to be a butterfly. You see, uh, all my cousins flying around there, that's all right for them. But I know if I ever get up there, I'll be airsick. So I'm staying right here. So no cocoon, no wings, no butterfly, born a caterpillar, die a caterpillar. Caterpillar doesn't have that choice. In its genes is programmed at a certain stage of its life cycle, spins a cocoon, comes out a butterfly, whether it wants to or not. So yes, there's improvement. But it's not a willful, initiated self-improvement. The only one who can make a willful self-improvement are you and I. I don't believe that animals can consciously think about the consequences of their actions. If I do this now, how's it going to play out a time later? We have the ability to do that. Animals cannot delay gratification. There's an impulse, wham, they have to fulfill it. We can delay gratification. An animal is not really free. It is under total dominance and tyranny of its body. Whatever the body wants, the animal must do. We are the only creatures who can defy a bodily desire. So we may be very hungry, 
and we may decide, whether for religious reasons or weight control or whatever, we may decide we're going to fast today. Can you think of an animal being hungry and saying, oh no, I'm going to fast today? Animals can't do that. Body wants food, they have to get food. Body wants water, they have to go for water. They cannot define the body. They cannot make free decisions. The only ones who can make free decisions are you and I. Now, it's not really a uniquely human decision if we avoid things because of fear of punishment. And animals do that too. You see, this little hungry jackal is foraging for food. And it spies this luscious carcass. And it would love to sink its teeth into that carcass and satisfy its hunger. There's a problem because that carcass is being feasted upon by a huge, ferocious tiger. Now, that little jackal doesn't go anywhere near that carcass. And it's not because he believes it's ethically wrong to take the tiger's property. It's because he doesn't want to get killed. So you see, avoiding something because of punishment is an animal trait. So suppose that I'm working in a financial institution that turns over hundreds of millions of dollars a day. And because I am computer savvy, I know how to transfer money from some accounts to mine. And within a short time, I can become exceedingly wealthy. And I have this greed for money. But then I realize, comes audit time, they're going to bring in a... Uh, someone who knows computer crime. And if they trace these transactions to me, my goose is cooked. They'll take all of my embezzled money away from me, hit me with a $50,000 fine, and put me in prison for 15 years. Oh, no, I can't. I can't risk that. So, I have my greed. What stops me from my greed? Fear of punishment. Well, that's fine, but that, that's not uniquely human. The jackal, too, will avoid his gratification of hunger for fear of punishment. When is there a moral free decision? When I decide to defy my bodily urges because I believe it is wrong to do so. So here you have somebody from some little town way up in northeast United States who happens to be on a convention in Hawaii. And he looks around and there's nobody within a thousand miles radius who knows he exists. And being there, he has this desire for a sexual affair. And there are no consequences. But then he thinks, this is not right. I am a married man. I have a loyalty to my wife. It is wrong for me to do this. And so he defies his urge on the basis of ethics and morals. No punishment involved. That is uniquely human. I think that we are the only creatures who can sacrifice of our own comfort, our own pleasure, in order to do something for someone else. Now, animals have a herd instinct, and they can go together for protection of the herd. But an animal, an individual animal, is unlikely to sacrifice for another. And incidentally, I'm talking about animals in the wild. Certainly, domesticated pets are different. Uh, they pick up human traits. And a dog can be very loyal and sacrifice for its master. But animals in the wild are not that way. Can you imagine this tiger feasting on the carcass, looking inside and looking, oh, the poor jackal. has not a, anything to eat. Look at it. His mouth is watering. He looks so hungry. Say, come on, jackal. You go over here. I've had enough. You can have the rest of this carcass. It's not going to happen. 
because animals cannot sacrifice and give of themselves for others. That kind of altruistic behavior is uniquely human. Selflessness is uniquely human. Everything animal does is selfish. Now, I've listed perhaps six or seven, I didn't keep count, eight, traits which are uniquely human in addition to sapiens, in addition to intellect. I'd like to put them all together and say that all of these traits that are unique to the human being, all taken together, comprise the human spirit. Now, where does religion enter into it? Because a person who believes in creation will say that when God created man, he instilled the spirit within man. And that's how man has all of these unique traits. A person who happens to be an atheist may say, well, of course, a human being has all these traits. That's undeniable. But I don't believe for a moment that God put them there because I don't believe in God. Now, these traits developed over millions of years of evolution. So, of course, man has a spirit. That's undeniable. But it has nothing to do with God. So, the presence of a spirit does not, as defined, does not depend on religion or on belief in God. Now, all of these are traits which we can either implement or neglect. When we implement these traits, then we are applying the spirit and we are being spiritual. So what do you have to do to be spiritual? You have to learn from the history of the past. You have to think about the purpose of your existence. You have to think about and implement self-improvement. You have to delay gratification. You have to think about the consequences of your behavior. You have to make free moral decisions. You have to sacrifice for yourself from others, for others. And when you do that, then you are spiritual. But come to think of it, those are the very traits that define humanity. And looking at that way, spirituality is really no different than humanity. And anybody that lacks spirituality, to that degree, they're deficient in being complete human beings. Now, they may have many degrees after their name, and they may have the highest intellect in the country, but that does not make them the finest and best human beings if they are lacking these other traits of the spirit that we spoke about. But why is it so important to have spirituality in recovery? Well, let's go down the list and see what happens during active addiction. One by one. Learning from the history of the past. Obviously, in active addiction, we don't learn from the history of the past. And so the alcoholic who has had a disaster every time he touched a drop of liquor, after a thousand such experience, says, but this time it'll be different. And so you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. So one characteristic of addiction is we do not learn from the history of the past. What about contemplating the purpose of existence? Well, there's no need to do that in active addiction because the purpose of existence is quite clear. It's to get high. So that uh, it may begin with waiting for five o'clock, may begin for waiting for the weekend, or like the gentleman, like so many people who have used cocaine said to me, when I get up in the morning, I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't think of my job. I couldn't think of my family. I couldn't think of my wife. I couldn't think of my little boy. 
The only thought that came to my mind was, where do I get cocaine today? So the purpose of life and addiction becomes the high. What about self-improvement? Well, obviously, in active addiction, we're busy going downhill and deteriorating and ruining ourselves at a thousand miles an hour. It's absurd to talk about self-improvement. What about foreseeing the consequences of our behavior? Clearly not. What about delaying gratification? Well, then you really got to be kidding. <laughs> One of these days, I am going to do this experiment. I just haven't gotten around to it. I'm going to get this huge glass jug, and I'm going to fill it up with all kinds of colored capsules. And then I'm going to go out on the street, and I'm going to spread the word that I got a shipment of stuff from South America that beats anything that anybody has ever tried. It beats speed, it beats ecstasy, it beats heroin, it beats cocaine. It's the most fantastic high in the world. And people say, oh my God, I bet you it costs a lot of money. I said, that's the best part about it. Two bucks a hit. What are you talking about? Two bucks a hit, that's as great as that. I said, yeah. Well, give me a hundred bucks worth. I said, hold it. Be glad to do it, but I'm not going to deceive you. There is a lag period in the onset of the high. You see... It takes anywhere from 48 to 72 hours for the high to come on. What do you mean? I said, well, look, today is Wednesday. Now, you take the capsule today. And somewhere around Saturday morning, Saturday evening, you'll get this superb, fantastic high. Give me back my $100. I said, why, don't you want this great stuff? Who wants that kind of junk? That's not junk. It's a great high. You see, an act of addiction... We measure time by seconds. We don't look at future. In the book that I wrote, Addictive Thinking, I pointed out that sometimes a therapist doesn't understand how can the alcoholic possibly say, I can stop drinking anytime I want to. Very obviously he can't. And the answer is, sure he can't, if you define time correctly. Right? In alcoholism and other addictions, time is measured in seconds, perhaps in minutes, rarely in hours. And a person who's been... Uh, uh, sober for as long as six or seven days, certainly for two weeks, he has stopped for time. Sure, he can stop for any time he wants to. Now, you may think of time as being yours, but in our active addiction, we don't think of time in that way. So, you see, in active addiction, uh, we don't have the spiritual component of delaying gratification. Well, what about making free moral decisions? You know, there have been all kinds of slave societies in history, but I don't believe there's ever been any slavery that has been as complete and as absolute as the slavery of addiction. When all of our freedom to make decisions is taken away from us, and the addiction makes the decision. And we do whatever the addiction tells us to do. How many times have you heard it? I do things in my addiction that I never thought I was capable of doing. We lose our ability to make free moral decisions. And what about the spiritual trait of being selfless, sacrificing of oneself to do things for others? Very hard to do that when you're in active addiction. And the people who we love the most are sometimes the ones that we hurt the most even though we didn't want to. We would love to be selfless, but the addiction doesn't allow it. So you see what happens in active addiction we lose all of spirituality. 
And this is why, in order to recover and to maintain our sobriety, we have to have all of the spiritual traits. One of the things that I write about again and again and again is the need for self-esteem. And I was bold enough to say that, with the exception of diseases that are biologic, such as bipolar, that all other human maladjustments and problems can be traced to one single factor, and that is to unwarranted feelings of inferiority and inadequacy, which so many of us have harbored since we were five years old for reasons unknown, but they were there. And self-esteem is so important to recovery. I may be sitting with a group of cocaine addicts and uh, say to them, suppose that you were fortunate enough to win a beautiful new shiny Porsche in a sweepstake, and you're driving it down the street and you're so proud of it. And you want to go to this building and how lucky, there's a parking space right in front of the building. But as you draw up, you find, uh-oh, something is valuable and beautiful. Then you try to protect it. And there's a natural resistance to damaging something that you know is valuable and beautiful. Then tell me, you knew that cocaine was damaging. Why didn't you have that feeling, that resistance to avoid damaging yourself? And there can only be one reason you didn't recognize about yourself that you were valuable and beautiful. So self-esteem is so tremendously important to prevent us from harming ourselves in any way, not only addiction. But in order to have self-esteem, a human being has to feel that he is fulfilling his or her humanity. Because if we are deficient in spirituality, if we are deficient in humanity, that takes away a great, great, great portion of our self-esteem. And when we lose self-esteem, we become more vulnerable to relapse, to addiction, to relapse. So, the idea of making free moral decisions very important part of spirituality. And to give of ourselves to others, very difficult to do in active addiction when addiction doesn't allow us to do what we know we should do. So those then are the definition, my definition of spirituality. And one can have it with religion, one can have it without religion. But one cannot have true, full humanity without spirituality. People out there who never had to struggle may not be aware of that. They may think they are being spiritual because of whatever rituals they go through, but not unless they fought the battle the way people in recovery have and realize that it's a matter of life and death. Not until then can they be spiritual. Now, I find it difficult to believe that the words of the 12 steps were authored without divine inspiration. They're just too good. You look at every little word out about how important it is. Take a look. And when wrong, promptly admitted it. There's a difference whether you admit something promptly or whether you wait a year. You know, if one gentleman in this country had only promptly admitted it, this country would have been saved $150 million last year. <laughs> And then there is the phrase, spiritual awakening. Did you ever think about how that term came about, spiritual awakening? I didn't understand it until a number of years ago I was supposed to be 
I, I had to get up early in the morning to do some writing because the publisher was pushing for a deadline. So instead of getting up at six, I set the alarm clock for four. And the alarm clock dutifully rang at four, and I did what any normal human being would do. I turned the alarm clock off just for five minutes more of sleep, and I woke up at 7.30. Well, just a matter of a few weeks after that, I had to give a lecture in Washington, D.C. on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and I had to make a 7 o'clock flight. And in order to make a 7 o'clock flight, I had to be up at 5 o'clock, so I set the alarm clock at 5. And uh, knowing what might happen, what I did was I took the alarm clock off the nightstand and set it on the further, farthest corner of the room. And I took the steps to prevent it, prevent myself from turning it off from the bed. And so the next morning when the alarm clock rang at five and I couldn't turn it off from the bed, I got up and walked over and turned it off. And since I was out of bed, there was no problem getting dressed and making the plane. On both occasions, I had an awakening. The first time, the awakening didn't last. I was awoken, but I went back to sleep. The second time, I was wise enough to do something to keep that awakening going. Now, many people, when they come into recovery, do have a spiritual awakening. But that doesn't mean that they stay awake. It is so easy to turn the alarm clock off and go back to sleep. And this is why I think that the words were so well chosen about the spiritual experience, and not a spiritual phenomena, not a spiritual experience, but a spiritual awakening to help us realize at all times that we have to keep the awakening state alive because at any time we can go back to sleep. So you see, my friends, these are the kinds of things that the program has taught me about spirituality. And I'm so grateful to the program for teaching me things that I had overlooked in my book learning. A number of years ago, I had one of my off days, and I was watering the lawn. When a car drives by, stops in front of the house, two guys jump out. How you doing, Doc? Two gradu graduates of Gateway. And I said, you know, if this were just a courteous question, I'd say, oh, I'm fine. But that's not the way I talk to people in the program. So I told them I feel terrible. And they said, why? I said, I haven't the slightest idea. I just have a lousy day. And I said, you need a meeting, Doc. I said, uh, no, no, thanks. I don't need a meeting. Eight o'clock that night, the doorbell rang. These two jokers are there. We're here to take you to meeting, Doc. Well, they meant well. So I went to a meeting. Now, mind you, this was the day when I was feeling lousiest of lousy. And what rotten luck to walk into a gratitude meeting. <laughs> and I sat there as everybody was getting up and telling about how long they were sober and how grateful it is and how wonderful life has been and whatever. You know, I, I, I couldn't insult people by walking out, so I sat there, but I kept feeling worse every moment. But I've never gone to a meeting without walking away with something. And the last person to speak got up and he said, gave his name, I've been sober for four years. And I wish I could tell you that they've been good years. But he said, uh, my company downsized. 
and uh, I lost my job. I'm 54, so I haven't been able to find another job. When I lost my job, that was the last straw, and my wife divorced me, and she has the custody of our little children. And then he said, because I fell behind in mortgage payments, uh, my house was taken for sheriff's sale. And last week, my car was repossessed. But he said, I can't believe that God brought me through all of this only to walk out on me now. The following Sabbath, I was reciting the prayers, and I read the portion where it said, you have taken us through difficult times, you have supported us through hunger, protected us from disease. Until now, your infinite mercies have not abandoned us, and you will not abandon us for the future. I had been saying that every week for the past 55 years, but I never heard what I was saying. And it was this experience at that gratitude meeting that alerted me to what I was saying and what I should be thinking. So you see, the experience of recovery is an extremely valuable one. We pay a high price for it. But where can you get something good cheap? Uh, Our lives have had a great deal of pain and perhaps even more pain when we watch the difficulties that others have had as a result of our addiction. But after it's all over with, and after we get into recovery, it's all worth it. Now, some people question about what I've said, and I sometimes have to tell parents when they bring in a youngster, an adolescent, and they think that it's the worst disaster that could have happened. I said it doesn't have to be. It can be the greatest thing. Because this young man or young woman have an opportunity to live a full life that they might never have had had they never gotten into addiction. And then I tell them, uh, I put my money where my mouth is. All the people who have to do any kind of important service for me must come from the program. So my doctor is in recovery. My surgeon is in recovery. My lawyer is in recovery. And they say, well, why? I say two reasons. First of all, I want the best, and I know where to find the best. Secondly, I have the strange desire to know that the person who is operating on me is sober. (laughs) So, uh, I do believe that recovery gives us a kind of spirituality that other people may get if they put a sincere effort to it, but the problem is nobody holds a gun to their head to make a sincere effort. Not too many people that I know of outside of the recovery have ever sat down to do a fearless moral inventory. Nor have they made a list of people that they've harmed. Nor have they made a list of their defects and sought to improve upon them. So you see, the kinds of things that recovery can give us are not available elsewhere. And how fortunate I am that in 1961, and I'm not going to bore you with this story, 
But in 1961, uh, Isabel came and uh, introduced me into Alcoholics Anonymous because at that time I was a resident in psychiatry and I realized that psychiatry doesn't have anything to offer because they weren't even teaching alcoholism or addiction in my residency program. And here this woman who had been drinking and dissolute for 35 years was five years into recovery. And I asked her, how do you do it? And she said, I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, you know, 1961, this was before Betty Ford and Jason Robert, whatever. What did we know about AA? Nothing. So I said, well, who does the treatment at the meetings? Oh, she says, we we talk. And I said, now, come on, Isabel, are there psychologists there? She says, well, there's this one psychologist who comes around, but he's still drunk most of the time, so he doesn't do any good. <laughs> so I said, look, something must be going on that psychiatry doesn't know about. Can I go to these meetings? And for the first time, I went to an AA meeting, walked into the meeting, and I found that I was at home, truly at home. Very other, very few times have I found true equality. And you'll say, well, before God, everybody is equal. Well, that's true, but of course, God does not have to pay a mortgage or the upkeep of the synagogue or church. And so the money has to come from members who donate, and obviously... Uh, wealthy, influential members are going to have something more to say about how the organization is run than those who have less. So I have never seen true equality until I came into AA and realized who you are and what you have doesn't make any difference. It really came to a head when I got a call from a gentleman saying that he wanted to make a gift of $10,000 to AA in a tribute because his sister uh, had 13 years of sobriety before she died, and that was thanks to AA. So he called me up and asked me, uh, where does he send the money? I said, I don't know. I'll try and find out. So I made a few local calls that nobody seemed to know. So I called World Headquarters, and I said, should we send the check there? And they said, oh, for heaven, don't say send it here. We wouldn't know what to do with it. I said, tell me, this man wants to make a donation, a contribution of $10,000 to AA. Now tell me how he does it. He says, well, you can go to the bank and cash the check and go to an open meeting and when the uh, basket comes around, you can put the $10,000 in the basket. You know, it really dawned upon me. An organization that can't accept donations. And then she said, don't be surprised if they give it back to him if, he's, if he doesn't belong to AA. And... That was just one of the few things that I realized, the only place, the first place, that I've seen true equality being practiced. And what greater spirituality is there than the realization that we are all the same, in spite of our differences. So, my friends, that is my story of spirituality that I came to through this wonderful program. Some people don't understand me when I say that as much as I have identified, I don't think that I can actually reach the degree of spirituality that many others have reached because I never actually had to make the struggle. And I envy you. Not that I want to experience the pain that you've experienced, but I envy the feeling of spirituality that you have 
that I cannot get except by identifying with you. But since that's the best I can do, I will continue to identify with you, and I will continue to be at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Al-Anon, Naranon, Overeaters Anonymous, Sex and Love Anonymous, and all the other wonderful 12-step programs. These are God's gift to mankind, and you are the fortunate recipients of the greatest gift God has given to man. Thank you for listening.